Amen. The rest of you can open up your Bible to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 will be verses 18 through 25 this morning. If you didn't bring your Bible, they'll put the words on the screen here in a little bit for us. You know, one of the things that's true about us that maybe we forget is that you and I, all of us, are hungry for glory. We are glory-hungry creatures. We are made for more than what we know. Everyone who lives a life in this broken and beautiful world experiences a longing, a desire to see it remade, to see it restored, to see it renewed, including themselves, even though it can sometimes be difficult to acknowledge that, even though sometimes we're reluctant to acknowledge that. The writer of Ecclesiastes says about the human heart that eternity has been set into the human heart. Eternity has been set into the human heart. In each one of us, there is a aching desire, a longing, an expectancy, a hope, a desire. And every protest, every bite, every sip, every argument, every vote, every kiss given, every song sung, every movie watched, Every day off, every day of accomplishment, every vacation, every Sabbath day of rest, every gathering of God's people in worship, every morning sunrise and every evening sunset leaves us wanting more. When we experience the best that this world has to offer, we feel as if it's not enough. And when we experience the worst that this world has to offer, we feel like there must be some comfort beyond it. We're glory-hungry creatures C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, one of my favorite of his books, he says this, apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation." And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. The healing of that old ache is glory. It's glory. It's glory that right now appears to be behind a veil. It's glory that seems to be beyond a door that we cannot open of our own effort. And last week we heard in Romans 8.18 mention of this glory. Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So today I want to retrace our steps a little bit and I want us to dive even deeper into this passage because if we do, I think what we will discover is this. We are made for a coming glory, and we will not be satisfied apart from it. We are made from a coming glory. We are hungry for it. The world aches for it, and it is fast approaching. Though when measured in our moments, it seems like it's taking forever. I'm going to read Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. After I read it, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. It's a reminder to us that God has spoken to us in his word. He hasn't left his people in silence. You're invited, though not obligated, to respond with thanks be to God. 
so that we might give thanks for God's word revealed. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18, says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is a coming glory. And we looked at this last week. There is a coming glory, but the shape of that glory is cruciform. That glory takes on the same shape of the glory of the king who has secured it. And the shape of the king's glory, the shape of the kingdom's glory, is the shape of the cross. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, these sufferings are all-encompassing. The word is broad intentionally. This includes not just the suffering as a result of sin, but the suffering that accompanies living in a world that's been broken by sin. So this isn't just the suffering that comes with being directly broken by sin. It's the suffering that also attends to living life in a world that's been broken by sin. So it's not just the judgment of God against sin. It's also just the realities that we live in a world that is not as it should be. And sometimes that hurts. All the time, it's hard. The sufferings of this present time also include the sufferings that accompany persecution for bearing witness to Christ. This means hostility towards the truth. It means rejection of what is good. It means the despising of beauty for the exaltation of that which is not beautiful. And having to live in a world where we, in indirect ways some of the time, and direct ways and sometimes in some places with some people, experience persecution, experience opposition to bearing witness to Christ Jesus. Now, these sufferings are confined to the present time. And like we discovered last week, this present time is not just our life, not just the moments that we live now, but the present time is an era. It's a period of history that really goes from the beginning of Christ's work on the cross to his second coming. Living in the already and the not yet where we are torn between what Christ has done and what Christ is coming again to complete and to finish. In this present time, the sufferings that we endure are for the purpose of making us needy and hungry for something beyond us. And what is that? What do the sufferings prepare us for? What do they prime us for? What do they whet our appetite for? Well, they whet our appetite. They increase our desire for something beyond us for a glory that we cannot get on our own, a glory that will not come through grit, but will come through gift. And this glorious gift is something that far outweighs 
the full totality of our present sufferings. This is going to be revealed. It's going to be an event. There is coming a day, the day of the Lord, when the glory of God will be revealed fully for good forever. And on this day, all of the sad things will come untrue. There will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more suffering because God will be bringing his kingdom of heaven in fullness to this world. And all that is not of God's kingdom will be judged and all that is of God's kingdom will be retained and refined and released into a restored, remade, renewed world with God forever. This is a coming day. This is the singular hope of the church. You can't read the New Testament apart from understanding that in their mind they have one critical hope, and it is that the Lord Jesus is coming again to bring a kingdom that is not of this world. I'll tell you, the Christian life, when you look at it in light of the New Testament, it does not make any sense at all if this is not the singular goal and hope of the Christian vision. It truly doesn't. It's utterly confounding any other way. It is what Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, foolishness. And I do wonder how often it is the chief hope of our lives. I think that we often settle for lesser hopes. And it's because we're often satisfied with lesser glories. We're satisfied with the glory of a new job, the satisfaction of the glory of a promotion, of a raise, the glory of a day off, the glory of a cool vacation, the glory of a well-liked Instagram post, the glory of an opinion affirmed. We settle for lesser glories. And subsequently, when we encounter real and deep sufferings, do you know what doesn't cut us do you know what doesn't make us resolved? Do you know what doesn't make us resilient? Lesser glories. So we endure deep sorrow and deep suffering, and yet we do not have a greater glory because we have settled for lesser ones. Paul is inviting us to view a great, great, great glory, and it is a glory that exceeds our grasp, but it is not a glory that exceeds God's grace. We can't get this glory, but God can give it, and he does, and that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference. In verse 18, Paul is encouraging the church and us to remember that from our vantage point in life, the sufferings and brokenness can appear to be dominant, but one day it will be clear that the sufferings of the present time were pennies in comparison with the gold bars of glory that God has for us. And I know that it's hard to see that, to feel that, to experience that when we're in the midst of suffering and sorrow because it appears as if it's the ceiling and there will be nothing beyond it. There will be no rescue, no redemption. There can be no restoration, that we will be stuck in the suffering forever. And yet... There is good news. There is good news that even though sometimes when we're caught up in suffering and it feels as if it is all-encompassing and will be forever, there is glory that is coming. 
Now, Paul has focused in on us, but now, in order to demonstrate just the incomparable weight and majesty of this coming glory, he's going to pan out. So he's been looking at kind of suffering in our present time under a microscope. Now he's going to put it in telescopic vision. He wants us to pan out and see it, not just from our view, but from the view of creation. So look at verse 19. He moves from I consider to verse 19 for the creation. So he's already moving from the personal to the cosmic here. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And why is this? Verse 20, creation was subjected to futility. What is the consequences of this? 21, that the creation itself is under bondage to corruption and will one day obtain freedom from it. The verse 22 is a verse that is famous because of just how visceral the imagery is here. Just how graphic it is. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. This is a very intimate image. This is a very visceral, physical, desperate kind of language that Paul is using. Paul wants us to see that the experience of suffering in this present time is not merely confined to each of our personal lives, but is something that the whole of creation has been subjected to in this present time. You see, the coming glory is not just for us. The coming glory is for all of God's creation. Creation is waiting with eager longing. Paul is pointing out something that is very easy for us to forget. God created the whole world good. And sin has broken all of it. It hasn't destroyed God's good structure, but it has directed creation In a broken way, it has fractured the goodness and the glory. It hasn't erased it, but it has marred it significantly. Creation has been broken by sin. The world itself is not operating in tov, the Hebrew word for good that we find in Genesis 1, that God created the world. He created the the light and the darkness, and he saw that it was good. He created the plant and the animals, and he saw that it was good. Tov, this tov, this goodness has been broken. It's been fractured. And it means that there are things that should work one way in the life of God's created order, and yet they work in the opposite. God did not create the world for us to get sick in it. God did not create the world for it to be broken by natural disasters. God did not create the world in order for us to be poisoned from berries on the vine. God did not create the world for us to live broken in it. But sin, the sin of Adam and Eve has subjected creation to futility. What was intended to work well is now broken. Is now broken. Instead of stewards being good stewards of God's creation, we are poor stewards of God's creation. You see, God put Adam and Eve in the garden to work it, to cultivate it, to subdue it. He did not make them owners of the world. He made them stewards in the world he owned. And they were meant to cultivate it in a direction 
that was good and righteous and true and beautiful and lovely. And yet creation was broken, which made this hard, and humans were broken, which meant that much of our cultivation and stewardship is broken. It is not in a direction that is righteous and true and good and beautiful. And you don't have to look too far to find this. Instead of filling the earth with image bearers, the stewards of creation filled it with false idols to false gods. Instead of cultivating good soil, we've strip-mined mountains. Instead of building economies where people are paid fairly, we've become global consumers of products made by people who are trafficked and treated unjustly. The world is broken, and we are bad stewards of this broken world. We were meant to be people who cultivated that which is Good, But because of the impact of sin, we are people who often cultivate in a direction that is unrighteous, that is broken. And creation is all too willing to be cultivated in a broken direction because creation itself has been broken. A number of years ago, Lauren and I were in Russia, which now seems crazy that we were there. Um, but we were there, and we were working a summer camp. And as we were driving down to this summer camp, 10 hours southwest of Moscow in a little region called Bryansk, they told us on the bus, you know, we're actually not too far from Chernobyl. And I was like, whoa, how close are we to Chernobyl? Um, uh, but they, we stopped off at this little village, and there was, in the middle of it, this bronze statue of a globe, okay? But right where we were standing, in that general area, there was a huge fracture in it. It was a memorial for what had happened at Chernobyl. It was a visual reminder to people that in this place, something terrible had broken in almost at a tectonic level to the core of the world. And I remember looking at it and thinking, that's true but not just of this little sliver. This whole thing has been shattered. This whole thing has been broken. This whole thing has been fractured. And it's not just one part of the world that's waiting for restoration. It's all of it. All of it. Creation is waiting for a day when there are no more city-destroying tornadoes. Creation is waiting for a day when there are no more coastal-destroying hurricanes, when there's a day when the sun is a blessing to us and not a burden to us, a day where there are no more famines, only feasts, a day where there are no more droughts, only wells that never run dry, a day when there is no more mosquitoes carrying malaria, a day when there are no more global pandemics, Creation is waiting for this day, and this day is outside of our ability to grasp it on our own. If the last two years have been a demonstration of anything, it's that it is very easy for us to presume that in a world in which there is so much technological sophistication, that when deep global problems emerge, we can approach them with wisdom, healing, grace, and unity. It's clear that that's not the case. It's clear that there are issues that will not be resolved until the kingdom comes in glory. 
And when we forget that, the broken world around us does not. Creation groans. It aches. Creation has been broken by sin. But what exactly is creation waiting for? Well, look at what it says. It says it's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation waits with eager longing, verse 19, for the revealing of the sons of God. What is this? Theologians and commentators on Romans take a number of different positions on what the revealing of the sons of God means. But I think the most compelling account is that this reference to the sons of God is a reference to those sons and daughters of Adam who have been redeemed and rescued in Christ. That there's a day coming when those who were intended to be good, holy, righteous, image-bearing stewards are restored, remade, and renewed, and then released into God's world to not work fallow, futile soil, but to work the redeemed, restored, renewed creation of God. This revealing of the sons of God is what creation is aching for. God's plan for the end of the world is to reveal his holy, royal family remade. No longer living in the broken estate of Adam, but now living in the beautiful estate of Christ, exercising wise and gracious and humble stewardship of God's world and God's kingdom in a kingdom where there will be no need for a son because of the light that emanates from the glorious face of God the day of unending rest that was promised to Adam and Eve and yet rejected in their sin. This coming glory is not small, and I think this is why Paul is panning out. When we are locked up into our own present sufferings, we can begin to feel as if, man, suffering of this world is just mine. Suffering can make us have incredible tunnel vision. It can make it feel as if we're the only ones really living in this world. And yet what Paul is doing here is he's reminding us that when we experience suffering, when we experience groaning, when we experience sorrow, that that doesn't isolate us from the normative experience of the world. It brings us in to the normative experience of the world. That what we're experiencing is not how some, some kind of personal attack. It is a reminder to us that we live in a broken world. We live in a world that rejects God's good order because of the impact of sin. The coming glory is not small. The coming glory is cosmic. There will be not one inch of all of creation that is not fully, perfectly, finally remade. And that's good news. It's good news. It's good news because there are many places in our world where it can feel as if the darkness sucks out all the light. If you've never been to those places, they're closer to you than you think. You don't have to go across the world. Sometimes you can just go across the block and realize that there is a darkness, that there is a suffering, that there is a groaning that is deeper than what we often have ears to hear. The coming glory that we whisper about 
is a glory that's cosmic. It's not merely personal, though it's not less than personal. God is not just restoring us. He's going to restore the whole world. For those who are sons and daughters of God, God is making all things new. But Paul brings it back to our attention in verses 23 through 25. Look at it. Verse 18, he focuses on us. He pans out in verses 19 through 22. But look at what he does in verse 23. He comes right back in. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Having panned out to the cosmic realm of creation and nature, Paul now focuses back in on, humi- uh, on humanity. And he's speaking to those who are Christians, those of us who have the Spirit here and now. We too are waiting. And look at the words he uses. We are groaning inwardly. We are waiting eagerly. We are hoping. We are waiting patiently. There's a lot of activity in these words. These are participles. These are infinitives. These are words that are communicating action, not just something that happened. It's not just you hoped. It's not just you believed. It's not just you you groaned. It's not just you waited. No, no, no. It's groaning. It's waiting. It's hoping. There's an activity to these words that Paul's trying to communicate. And what are we hoping for? What are we waiting for? What are we groaning for? Well, Paul says for adoption, and for redemption. Now, you might think, hasn't Paul already told us we're redeemed? Hasn't he already told us we are adopted? And you're not misremembering that. Throughout Romans, Paul will use language like adoption, like redemption, like justified, in past tense language. But he will often use those very same terms in ongoing or future-oriented language. And let me tell you why that's important. Because Paul is not saying, you have been adopted, now that's done. He's saying, you have been adopted, you are being adopted, you will be adopted. Paul's not saying, you have been redeemed, now it's done. He's saying, you have been redeemed, you are being redeemed, you will be redeemed. Now, you might think, well, doesn't that take away from the definite nature of God's work? No, it's an indicator that everything God starts in you, God finishes with you. That God doesn't start the adoption process and then really get to know you and say, not you. I'm not so sure. I'm uncertain. You flunked out. You haven't measured up. God doesn't start the redemption process and say, not you. Your sin was actually worse than I thought. You actually can't keep obeying. You always fail. No, whatever God starts in you, God finishes in you. Salvation is past, present, and future. And in the midst of this ongoing work of God, in the midst of the ongoing creation, a groaning of creation and our souls in the world, what is God calling us to? Verse 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What is the work that God is inviting us into? 
in the midst of the ongoing grace of God and our salvation and the ongoing groaning of creation and our souls in the world, what is God calling us to? Hope. 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 Hope is a muscle that atrophies quickly. Hope is a muscle that atrophies quickly. We desperately need hope in dark days, but in dark days, it's very hard to hope. Isn't it? Like you never need hope more than when it feels like it's the most costly thing to give. You never need hope more than when it feels like you have no hope left. The hope that Paul is talking about here is not a, it's not cheap. It's not thin. And it's not detached from the sorrows and sufferings of life in a broken world. We know Paul is somebody who is well acquainted with suffering. So when he talks about hope, he has some measure of testing that he's experienced with exercising hope. And I know that hope can be hard. I felt it myself. I was listening to uh, Ben Folds this past week. I don't know if any Ben Folds fans in here. He's one of my favorite songwriters. He wrote a song called Picture Window. And it's a really sad song. I just want to prep you for that. I'm about to read the chorus and it's pretty sad. The song is telling the story of a terminally ill patient in a hospital room looking out a small window who's lost all hope. And the chorus goes like this. Hope is a liar, a cheat, and a tease. If hope comes near you, kick its backside. It's got no place in days like these. Sometimes that's exactly what it feels like to entertain hope. It feels like hope? Hope on, in today? Hope in the midst of this sorrow? Hope in a waiting room? Hope in the face of another disappointment? Hope in the face of sin? Hope in the face of suffering? Hope in the face of death? Hope in the face of darkness? Hope in the face of pandemics? Hope in the face of injustice? Hope in the face of heartache? Hope in the face of loneliness? Hope in the face of marriages dissolving? Of beloved people dying? Hope in days like these, hope is what God calls us to? Yes, hope. I've been in those hospital rooms. I've been in the room where it feels like if you whisper the word hope, it'll shatter everything. I've been with some of you in those spaces. I've been on the other side of phone calls when it feels like to even mention hope, feels like an illusion, like a figment, like dreaming, like some sort of oasis that is imaginary. I've sat with couples in this church who can't imagine there's hope that their marriage could be healed. I've sat with parents grieving Death, who can't imagine that they'll ever recover. I've sat with men and women who feel overtaken by despair. And I know what the word hope sounds like on days like that. 
because I've also been the person who's sitting in the hospital room. I've also been the person on the other side of the phone call. I've also been the person staring down death and hearing someone hold out to me hope. I'm often thinking in my mind, and I think many of us are, that when we talk about hope, we're talking about something that we will get to see fully in this lifetime. And I'll just tell you, the hope that Scripture is inviting us into is not hope that it is all going to just work out now. It's not hope that everything's just going to eventually get better. It's not hope that eventually we won't feel the deep sadness we experience. It's not hope that eventually grief will be gone just because we'll forget about it. No, it's, it's hope that a day is coming when God will renew, restore, and remake. It's waiting with confidence. And this hope can be incredibly difficult to exercise. It's rooted in a coming day and a coming glory. I think that we learn to hope little because we learn to be satisfied with lesser glories. And when the deep hurts of this world hit the corners of your heart, Lesser glories will not be a comfort. They won't be. It won't matter how big your bank account is. It won't matter how secure your investments are. It won't matter how well liked you are. It won't matter how safe you think you are. When the deepest sorrows of the world hit the corners of our heart, and when we find ourselves groaning inwardly with creation, we come to realize that we have settled for lesser glories and our hopes have not been put on the thing that will truly bring comfort. It's not only we who are waiting. The world is in a season of waiting. This expectancy, this longing, this aching, and hope isn't always glad expectancy. Hope is often desperate groaning. It's not always just the glad expectancy of a heart that just believes. Sometimes it's the groaning of an expectancy of a heart that can't seem to believe anymore. Hope doesn't just always sound like major chords and sweet songs. Sometimes it sounds like minor chords and songs of grief. But there is something coming. There is a glory that's coming that will make all things new. It's a kingdom where death is destroyed for good forever. It's a kingdom where loneliness is a forgotten plague on the heart. It's a kingdom where we see and are seen with a clear love. It's the beloved kingdom ruled by a beloved king filled with God's beloved people. And you and I are invited into it. We're invited into it. God is giving us this kingdom because he's gracious and he's kind and he's generous. The world is not owed the kingdom of God and I am certainly not owed the kingdom of God. You are not owed the kingdom of God. It's all grace. It's all gift. 
The coming glory will not be secured because we reached out and grabbed it. It will be secured because God has secured it for us and invites us to receive it as a gift. This coming glory is what we long for. One of the four foundational truths of Mosaic is that God is glorious. He satisfies the deepest desires of our heart. Glory is what we ache for. Glory is what we long for. Glory is what will heal us. But it is not the glory of Babel. It is not the glory of hands that build and minds that dream. It is not the glory that resources can secure. We cannot work hard enough to get this glory. We cannot earn hard enough to get this glory. We cannot prove hard enough to get this glory. But God gives it. And he is going to give it to his children and to the world. That's not an illusion. It's not a figment of your imagination. It is sure and steady as the resurrection of Christ is. There is a day coming, the day of the Lord, when we will rise to meet with Jesus and be made new. And the world that we will enter in will be the world we've been dreaming to live in the whole time. C.S. Lewis, concluding the thought that he introduced earlier in Weight of Glory, says this. At present, we are on the outside of the world. We are on the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. All the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And until then, we whisper the rumor of hope. Not hope that we're going to fix it. Not hope that it's going to be fixed for us. But hope that God is bringing his kingdom to this world. And he's inviting all of us to live in it through grace. And until that day... We pray, Maranatha. Lord, would you come? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy in Jesus. We stand in deeper need of it than we would readily admit. We are aching for glory. In hospital rooms, we are aching for glory. In In times of sorrow, we are aching for glory. When it feels like we have been wrung dry, we are aching for glory. When we finish out the long-desired vacation, we are aching for glory. When we get a raise, we are aching for glory. When we feel hopeless, we are aching for glory. God, I pray that the heart's of the people of this church and the people of this community 
would begin to experience a restlessness. A restlessness that attends with trying to satisfy the deepest desires of their heart with anything less than the eternal weight of glory. Father, St. Augustine prayed, I pray that you would make us restless until we find our rest in you. And I pray, God, that you would give us not thinner desires, but thicker desires that can only be sated, that can only be satisfied, that can only be met with an encounter with the glory of God in Jesus. And I pray that the glorious day of your return would come soon, Lord and that the world would be remade for good forever. And until then, make us priests, prophets, kings and queens who proclaim the excellencies of your glory and who enjoy it. We pray these things in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stand with us as we receive the Lord's Supper?